Well, usually I try to introduce the sermon uh, by articulating the main idea uh, of the sermon passage. And I do want to do that, uh, but in just a moment. First, I want to take this opportunity as we're diving back into the Gospel of Mark uh, to go over the structure of the whole Gospel uh, of Mark with you, as well as to remind you sort of where we are in the narrative. So let me ask the AV team if we can put that slide up. There we go. Okay, so that's a lot. Uh, But let me see if I can wave my hands and explain and make more sense out of this slide. So the Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters long. Uh, Somehow they got doubled there. That should be, eight should be in the middle there. Um, The Gospel of Mark divides very naturally into half in the middle of chapter eight. The first half of Mark's gospel, after a really brief introduction for 13 verses, uh, describes Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. Galilee, remember, is in the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem is in the southern part. Uh, Mark's first half of his gospel is almost entirely driven by the question, who is Jesus? So the very first sentence of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark tells us who he thinks Jesus is. The gospel of Mark starts like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is an excellent writer. He's saying right up front, this is my thesis. Jesus is the Christ, the prophesied spirit-anointed deliverer, and he is the Son of God. As Mark narrates Jesus' ministry in Galilee, these first eight and a half chapters, he is showing us again and again through the teachings and the miracles of Jesus that he is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. This first half of the gospel concludes in the middle of chapter eight when Jesus asks his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And the climax of this first half is when Peter says, you are the Christ, Mark chapter eight, verse 29. From that point onward, the gospel of Mark shifts to focus on two additional questions. What has Jesus come to do? Or in other words, what kind of Christ is Jesus? What entirely does it mean for his mission that he's the Christ? Uh, And second, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If we want to belong to the Christ, to be saved by him, what, what does that life look like? So from Mark chapter 8, verse 31 onward, we get Jesus' journey sort of from even further north than Galilee down to Jerusalem, uh, where he will eventually die on the cross and rise from the dead. So we have Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee in the first half, Jesus' journey to the cross in the second half. This second half of Mark's gospel from 831 to the end is further divisible into two subsections, okay? So from chapter 8, verse 31... Uh, to the end of chapter 2, we get Jesus and his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And I put that phrase, on the way, in quotes, intentionally. I'll mention why in a moment. Uh, And then at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And this big section, uh, really from chapter 11 to 16, records the final week of Jesus' life. So our sermon text this morning uh, comes in the first part of that second half. So the red star is where our text is, as Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, Can I ask that we project the next part of the slide? Okay, so here's what you need to know about this subsection from chapter 831 to 1052. Three times 
as Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus predicts that when he gets to Jerusalem, he is going to be killed and then rise from the dead. He does it in chapter 8, right after verse 31, in our passage this morning in the middle of 9, and again in chapter 10. Each time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, the disciples do not get it. Like they miss the whole point. And in fact, they, they really don't understand what it means to follow this kind of Savior either. So, three times after Jesus predicts his death and resurrection and the disciples don't get it, Jesus teaches the disciples about what it means to follow him on the way. The way is actually a really common way that early Christians referred to Christianity. The book of Acts talks about believing in Jesus as the way. So, cleverly, uh, Mark, in this section of his gospel, is both telling us literally what happened as they are journeying on the way to Jerusalem physically, and uh, he's letting us know what Jesus teaches about what it means to follow Jesus on his way. He's teaching us about the way of the Messiah uh, that leads through death to eternal life and what it means to follow him. Thank you, Ben. You can take the slide down. Having just gone over all that, before we read the sermon text, let me, let me just take this opportunity to encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you want to grow as a Christian, strive to become familiar with the books of the Bible. It's good to come to the Bible sort of wanting something for today, wanting something applicable that speaks to me right now, you will actually find the Bible most applicable, most helpful if you come to it in order to understand it deeply on its own terms. If you bring your questions to Mark, your concerns to Mark, he'll help you. But if you come to Mark and say, what are Mark's concerns what are the questions that he actually thinks I need to be asking? In the long run, you'll be even more helped. So let's turn our attention now to what God's Word says to us in Mark chapter 8, verses 30 to 41. I'll read the text and I'll pray once more for us. Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, not, not chapter 8, chapter 9, verses 30 to 41. Mark writes, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we tried to stop him because he was not following you, following us, excuse me. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Please pray with me once more. Father, as we come to the gospel of Mark to learn about the way of Jesus that he walks for our salvation, uh, the way on which he calls us to follow him, would you give us hearts that believe, that understand, that respond to your word as you desire. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Help me to preach. Help us to listen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning quite clearly addresses the idea of greatness. My guess is that whoever you are, a greatness matters to you. We might all do it in different ways, But we actually all spend quite a lot of time and energy running after things that we believe deep in our hearts would make us great, or at least would help us to feel that we are great. I wonder how each of us would fill in this blank if we were being totally honest. If blank, then I would be great. If blank, then I would be great. Well, the main point of our passage is very simple and very counterintuitive. Here it is. If you want to be great, follow Jesus in humble service. If you want to be great, follow Jesus in humble service. Three points In our outline this morning, I'll give them to you as we walk through the passage. First point, Jesus achieves greatness through humble service. Jesus achieves greatness through humble service. There in verse 30, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples continue on from there, uh, there most likely being the foot of the mountain on top of which Jesus was transfigured. Uh, that's north of Galilee. And Mark tells us that on their journey, Jesus and his disciples pass through Galilee. That's noteworthy since, as we saw, Jesus has spent most of the narrative traveling within Galilee. And now, for the last time in Mark's gospel, Jesus passes through Galilee on his way south to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. Mark tells us Jesus doesn't want anyone to know that he's in Galilee. Uh, We've seen before that once Jesus' presence is known, there are crowds. Uh, And Jesus doesn't want that because his priority, we read in verse 31, is what he is teaching his disciples. Mark tells us in verse 31 that Jesus is teaching his disciples something important about himself. And before we, we see what Jesus is teaching about himself, notice what Jesus calls himself there in verse 31. What are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 31? 
Jesus calls himself there the Son of Man. Well, by the end of Mark's gospel, it becomes very clear that when Jesus uses that phrase, the Son of Man, to refer to himself, Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel chapter 7 that we read earlier. Uh, let me read Daniel's vision from Daniel 7, 13, and 14 again. It's very brief, and I want it to be fresh in your mind. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, to this son of man figure, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus was born, God revealed to the prophet Daniel that one day God would establish an everlasting kingdom over all mankind. And God revealed that that kingdom would be given to, ruled by, an individual that Daniel describes as one like a son of man. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's saying, I'm that guy. God is going to make me the eternal king of all mankind. Remember, we've seen throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus preaches that now that he's come, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's because he is himself the king. A moment ago, when we paused to think about that question, if blank, then I would be great. I doubt very much that any of us thought, you know, if God judged me worthy to be the everlasting king of all mankind, then I would be great, right? Most of us have the good sense to aim lower than that. But that's exactly what Jesus is claiming about himself. Jesus is saying that he is destined for incomparable greatness. Now, if that's not startling enough that Jesus says, hey, I am the Daniel 7 son of man. Look what Jesus is saying about the son of man there in verse 31. Look in verse 31. Jesus says there, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is teaching his disciple the full picture revealed by the Old Testament, that the Son of Man, the Christ, first dies, then rises. First, he's killed, then he's enthroned. First, he suffers, then he's glorified. And we might say that Jesus' way takes him through the humble service of the cross to the greatness of an eternal kingdom. I've mentioned Daniel 7 as standing behind Jesus' use of that title, the Son of Man. There's another Old Testament prophecy standing behind Jesus' words here. Jesus says in these verses that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. That word that Jesus uses, delivered, 
It seems to be a reference to the famous prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant who dies for the sins of God's people. So Mark is written in Greek, so when he alludes to an Old Testament, Testament te- text, he alludes to the Greek translation of it. Listen to uh, the Greek translation of Isaiah 53. In verse 6, we read, The Lord delivered him up for our transgressions. In verse 12, we read, His soul, this suffering servant, his soul was delivered to death in place of them. He was delivered over because of their iniquities. So Jesus is saying, I am both the Daniel 7 son of man and the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. Jesus is saying that his path to enthronement as the son of man takes him through the suffering of the cross for the forgiveness of God's people. Can you see, Mark is showing us That Jesus, although he is intrinsically great as the Son of God, reaches greatness through humble service. Jesus certainly was eternally and intrinsically great as the Son of God, and he didn't need to become a man in order to fill some sort of need in him. As the Creed says, Jesus took on human flesh for us and for our salvation. And after Jesus became a man, Jesus had every right to be worshipped by every person he ever met as their creator. Every person Jesus ever saw owed him obedience. Everything Jesus ever saw, he owned as its creator. But Jesus didn't come to enjoy the treatment that he deserved. Jesus came to die as a substitute for his people who had sinned against him. Jesus came to pay our debt. He came to cleanse us from our sins by his blood. The son of man's willingness to be the suffering servant for us is an act of amazingly humble service. Paul puts it best in Philippians 2. Paul writes that though he was in the form of God, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a what? A servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what does Paul say next? Where did Jesus' path of humble service ultimately lead him? He says next, Therefore, in other words, because of Jesus' humble service and obedience to God, God has done what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God has honored Jesus' humble service by making him incomparably great. Jesus is literally, actually the goat, greatest of all time. Right? Think about how many people on earth know your name. How many people do you think? How many people are there who, if they heard your name, would respond by gushing your praises? What? They hear your name and say, wow, so-and-so is truly great. Friends, think about how many 
millions of people today sang songs about how great King Jesus is. He is the name above every name. And the Apostle Paul says that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow to him. Some having been saved by his grace, some conquered as the king. There is no greater greatness than the greatness won by Jesus through his humble service. That's our first point. Mark is showing us Jesus achieves greatness through humble service. Here's our second point this morning. By contrast, we struggle with humble service. That's our second point this morning. We really struggle with humble service. There in verse 32, Mark records the disciples' response to Jesus' teaching. Mark writes, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. We'll say more about the disciples' lack of understanding in a moment. For, the, for now, I'm intrigued by this comment that the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus. Uh, it just it seems to me that in life, one of the, the main things that keeps people from growing in understanding is that we're not humbly willing to admit that we don't understand and to ask questions, right? Like the disciples, we're often afraid to ask because we don't want our ignorance to show. When I'm in a room and it's clear that like most people get something and I don't get it, my first impulse is like, how can I act like I get it so that I don't seem dumb, right? Rather than, hey, maybe I could learn and grow. Not a great start for the disciples in the humility department, right? Well, in verse 33, we read there that the disciples arrive with Jesus in Capernaum. Capernaum is in Galilee. Remember, it's the hometown of Peter and Andrew. Verse 33, Mark says that Jesus enters the house. This is probably Peter's house uh, where Peter, I'm sorry, where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law back in chapter one. And while Jesus is in the house, Jesus asks his disciples, hey, on the way, what were you guys talking about? And there's crickets. No one seems to want to answer Jesus' question. And that's because, Mark tells us in verse 34, that on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I get the picture. Jesus and his disciples are on the way down to Jerusalem. What's on Jesus' mind? Dying for the sins of his people. What's on the disciples' mind? Me and my greatness compared to yours. It seems that that's why the disciples don't understand Jesus' teaching. Their minds are not on the humble service wavelength. They're on the me and my greatness wavelength. Friends, most of us, most of the time, are more tactful than the disciples are here. Most of the time, most of us don't have open discussions in which we compare our greatness with other people's. Sometimes we do. Most of the time we don't. But what the disciples do out loud, we do often in our hearts. An x-ray of our hearts reveals that we are in love with our 
greatness. Let me give you just two places that you can look to see this. Uh, The first is our emotions. You want to see that we're in love with our greatness. Look at your emotions. Look at what makes you happy or anxious or angry or bitter or excited or jealous. Not, Not all of our emotions are like this, but many of our emotions are connected directly to our personal quest to be great in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. When we get praise and affirmation and attention, we're happy. When we're in charge, when we're in control, we're happy. When we think we might lose those things, we're afraid. When we see someone else get those things, we're envious. When someone disrespects us, when someone has a go at our greatness. So when someone takes control from us, when someone ruins our pleasures that make us feel so great, we get angry. Many of our emotions are tied to how our personal quest for greatness is going. The second place we see our own great love for our greatness is in our daydreams. Friends, notice what you think about when your mind has time to wander. In our daydreams, so often, again, not always, but more often than we would like to admit, right? I am the blazing center of attention in my daydreams. My glories are on display. My desires are realized. My enemies get what's coming to them. I make my rivals jealous. I compare favorably with those around me. It's like we give our minds a break for a moment And our hearts throw a festival to our own greatness without even trying. We look at our emotions and we look at our daydreams and we see that we do love our greatness. A minute ago I said, none of us really wants the place of the Son of Man. But it's almost like we do. It's almost like at least in our little corner of the world, we do want to be the eternal king. And friends, that's that's one of the reasons we find humble service so hard because humble service feels like the death of our greatness a humble service doesn't seek honor and glory from other people a humble service often gives up control a humble service limits our ability to gratify ourselves a humble service often involves sacrifice and inconvenience, and suffering. And sometimes we think that we like the idea of humble service, and then the people that we're supposed to serve humbly annoy us, and we're like, forget it. I'm not wasting my humility on you. You're the worst, right? You're not even grateful that I was thinking about being humble toward you. We really struggle with humble service. And our struggle with humble service, point number two, is why we so desperately need, point number one, the humble service of Jesus that he shows us on the cross. Friends, our our intoxication with our own greatness is a sin against God. We all know there are few things more obnoxious than being wronged by someone who's arrogant. It's annoying to be wronged. It's really annoying to be wronged by someone who's arrogant. Saints, we've been like that toward God. And the Word of God promises that because God runs the world, pride 
comes before a fall. God will see to it. But the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus took the fall that we had coming for our sins. Brothers and sisters, the saving love of Jesus is so big that he was not repelled from saving you by your pride. Right? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so thrilled that you've come. We hope you feel welcome. A friend, the claim of the Bible is that we all need Jesus to repair the rift in the relationship between God and us that our pride has fractured. If you, if you have questions about how you can be reconciled to God through the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus by believing in him, if you have questions about that, please come talk to us after the service. We'd love to speak with you about how that forgiveness, that reconciliation with God can be yours. And saints, for those of us who do know Jesus, when we're struggling with humble service, we need to look to Jesus. We need to see that his grace is bigger than our sin, bigger than our struggle. And we need to see that in calling us to humble service, Jesus is not calling us to do anything that he himself has not done for us to an immeasurably greater degree. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning. Jesus calls us to follow him in humble service. Jesus reaches greatness through humble service. We struggle with humble service. Jesus calls us to follow him in humble service. Uh, the disciples don't seem uh, to own up to their greatness contest, but either because he overheard or because he's Jesus, Jesus knows. There in verse 35, we read that Jesus takes a seat. Uh, he calls the 12 to himself. And look what Jesus says there in the second half of verse 35. Jesus says, if, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. As Jesus says to his disciples, this desire that you have for greatness, it's not entirely wrong. It's mostly wrong. It's not entirely wrong. The path, the way to greatness is not what you think. Jesus says those who follow the Son of Man must walk the path of humble service. You might think about what Jesus is teaching in, in terms of two greatness trajectories. One trajectory, the trajectory the disciples are thinking about, uh, first lifts itself up in pride. It seeks greatness for itself in defiance of God, and it ends in judgment. The, the trajectory that Jesus is advocating first humbles itself in submission to God, in imitation of Jesus, in service of our neighbor. And just as God did for the Lord Jesus, God exalts he gives grace to those who humble themselves. Jesus calls us to follow him on what's been called that J curve. I guess for you, the J curve of greatness through humble service. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Brothers and sisters, listen. If you would be great in God's eyes, go wild applying those words 
to every area of your life. In my job, how can I humble myself and be the servant of all? In my marriage, how can I humble myself and be the servant of all? As a mom, as a dad, how can I humble myself and be the servant of all? As a brother, as a sister, as a child, how can I humble myself and be the servant of all? As a friend, as a church member, as a neighbor, how can I humble myself and be the servant of all? Jesus gives us a hint about how to apply these things in verses 36 and 37. We read there, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In Jesus' day, society viewed children much more negatively than we do today. Our high view, gracious view of children is in large part due to the grace that Jesus showed to children. In Jesus' day, they were not revered. Children were pictures of insignificance. Right? Children were people who can't do anything for you in return, but have needs. That's still true. That's not true. Jesus invites a little child into the middle of these disciples, and he gives him a hug. He takes him up in his arms. Jesus indicates that the humble service he's talking about involves embracing, receiving, loving people who don't prop up your greatness. People who can't do anything for you in return. Jesus indicates we should embrace such people, including literal children, in his name, on his authority. Not for their sake, but because of him, because of our love for him. Shout out to all the moms and dads giving themselves up for children in the name of Jesus. Shout out to all the children's ministry volunteers. Shout out to those who serve children and others in a million other ways. Jesus says that when we receive such persons, we're receiving him and ultimately the father who sent him. Jesus' call to humble service is often a call to serve those who can do nothing for us in return. There are two final things we need to see about Jesus' call to humble service in our passage. There in verses 38 to 41. Two more things to see about this call to humble service. Uh, the first thing is that humble service is not cliquish. Humble service is not cliquish. Uh, verse 38 seems to record a conversation that takes place at a different time, uh, but Mark very intentionally has stitched these sections together. Uh, look there in verse 38. John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John's logic seems to be that because this guy casting out demons isn't sort of officially with us, he's rogue and he needs to be stopped. John seems to think, well, if this guy were legit, he would be following us. He would be on our team specifically. But that's not how Jesus sees it, right? Jesus says the fact that this guy is performing miracles in Jesus' name indicates that he's on team Jesus, which is ultimately the only team that matters. 
uh, Jesus seems to be rebuking John's clickishness. Right? This idea that you can't really be cool with Jesus or valid in ministry uh, unless you're directly connected to us. Uh, Jesus is telling John, look, don't think that you have a corner on the market of good gospel work. You, John, are not the defining center of God's kingdom. That's Jesus. And there are other people loving and serving Jesus who are connected to him that, that really don't have anything to do with you. And that might not feel great to your greatness, but that's okay. Brothers and sisters, the humble service that Jesus calls us to excludes clickishness. It excludes ungracious attitudes from those who are in sort of a different tribe, but still the family of God. We should not think that only people who are connected to us or people who agree with us on every single detail are legitimate servants of Jesus. So, so please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying doctrinal differences don't matter. Right? Jesus doesn't say that. There's actually no indication that there's a doctrinal difference between the disciples and, and these other people. Uh, but I do think that's a legitimate way to apply this text. Friend, here's a, here's a question for you. When you meet another Christian, someone who really embraces the true Jesus of the Bible, even if they don't agree with you about all of the details, are you more, more eager to embrace that person lovingly because of what you share? Or are you more eager to fight about what you disagree concerning, theologically or politically or culturally, if they're not sort of exactly the same as you in every way? Again, I'm not saying that doctrinal and these, these sorts of disagreements don't matter. But I am saying, because Jesus is saying, that the humble service that Jesus calls us to includes being gracious to others on Team Jesus rather than cliquish and self-important. Second, one final thing we need to see about the humble service that Jesus is calling us to. There in verse 41, Jesus teaches... That humble service will be rewarded. Humble service will be rewarded. Jesus mentions this as another reason not to stop the unfamiliar exorcist. Because he says he's going to reward whoever gives the disciples a cup of water to drink. He says, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Brothers and sisters, when we follow Jesus, even in small acts of humble service, he promises to reward us. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we might want to know about how Jesus will reward his people on the day of judgment, but Jesus regularly reminds us that those who are saved by grace will, because of God's overflowing grace, be rewarded according to what they do. Right? In our passage, we see just how amazingly generous and beyond anything we could deserve this reward is. Right? If we stopped sinning right now and served Jesus perfectly every day of our lives, we would be giving him no more than he deserves, right? In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, when you have done everything you've com you were commanded, you need to realize that you've only done your duty. But in our passage, Jesus takes 
a tiny act of humble service, giving someone a cup of water. And Jesus says, you better believe I'm going to reward that service on the last day. I don't know all the details of what that reward will look like, but I am certain that being awarded, being rewarded by Jesus on the last day is a truer greatness than all the empty things that we run after on earth. Right? Have, you, have you ever experienced someone giving you encouragement or appreciation or recognition for humble service? Right? That, that's, that feels so good to be affirmed in that. Christian, can you imagine standing in front of Jesus and instead of being condemned for all your sins, Jesus lift, listing out every single act of humble service that you've ever done for him down to the giving of a cup of water and generously rewarding you for eternity. Can you imagine that? Jesus wants you to imagine that because he talks about it all the time. This is one of the last things Jesus says in the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. Christian, listen, if you want to be great, don't settle for the world's fleeting imitation greatness. If you want to be great, Follow Jesus in humble service and look to the Son of Man and the suffering servant for a gracious, generous reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the humble service of the Lord Jesus, that though he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he became the suffering servant for us, that he was delivered up to death so that we might be forgiven so that we might be cleansed. Lord, thank you that in your mercy, not only have you cast our sins into the bottom of the ocean, but that you promise that you will reward every one of our imperfect acts of faithfulness toward you. Lord, would these things give us a big view of your grace and of your kindness. Lord, we ask for your help and your strength to follow Jesus as those who have been served by him, and serving others for our joy, for their joy, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.